Did Don Draper really buy the world a Coke? Did Tony Soprano really die or just order more onion rings? The finales of our favorite shows can make us argue, make us cry, and make us crazy. From Spotify and The Ringer, I'm Andy Greenwald, and this is Stick the Landing, a new podcast where we'll be telling the story of modern TV backwards, one fade out at a time. Find Stick the Landing on Wednesdays on the Prestige TV feed, on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Better presentations are possible. You just need Canva presentations. With it, you can easily and quickly make stunning slides. All you have to do is start with one of Canva's professionally designed templates or generate slides with AI. Then add graphs, charts, and more from the massive media library, and you're done. It's that simple. I always think that the best use of AI in work is it does the thing that you naturally aren't very good at. And personally, one thing I'm really terrible at is making visual presentations. I'm not very visually inclined. I'm not good at picking out you know, photographs or abstract conceptual images to go with ideas I'm trying to put forward in presentations. So it's kind of nice to have an AI-powered tool that can help me make these presentations in literally seconds. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. Today's episode is about the science of having hard conversations. We begin with a story. In the 1970s, a group of psychologists wanted to look at how married people navigate conflicts in their relationship. So they videotaped interviews of husbands and wives talking about whatever, their sex lives, their fights, And very often, they fought right there in front of the cameras. The researchers recorded more than a thousand marital arguments. Two findings emerged when they coded the data. First, all couples fight. That was very clear. Second, fights have very different effects on different couples. For some couples, the researchers found, fights are like poison. Bit by bit, they weaken the bonds of marriage. For other couples, Fights are like hard medicine. They make relationships stronger, healthier. And these researchers, who called themselves the love shrinks, wanted to know the difference between happy and unhappy couples by looking at their conversations. They wanted to know the formula, if you will, for having a productive marital fight. The first hypothesis of these researchers was that happy and unhappy couples fight about totally different things, that unhappy couples fight about the big stuff, money, health, substance abuse, and happy couples only fight about trivial stuff that never leaves a dent. Well, that hypothesis was totally wrong. Everybody, it turns out, fights about money, responsibilities, silly vacation disputes. Hypothesis number two, maybe happy couples are just more resilient. 
right? That makes sense. Everybody fights, but some people are just better at forgetting and forgiving. Wrong again. In fact, they found many happy couples seem to be terrible at forgetting and forgiving. They fought over and over and over. They had the same fight again and again. They never came to any kind of resolution. But not only did they stay together, they said they were very happy being married. The key they discovered isn't that happy couples fight over the right things, but rather that happy couples fight in the right way. They're not super Zen monks, never allowing anything to upset them. They're not super forgivers either. They are super communicators. So what the hell does that mean? What's the best way to have a difficult conversation that strengthens a marriage rather than ends it? The full answer to that question, I'm not going to tell you yet because I want it to be spelled out to you by Charles Duhigg, the author of The Power of Habit and a new book very appropriately called Super Communicators. Duhigg's book, which mentions the Love Shrinks study, is about how to talk when talking is hard, how CIA agents recruit recalcitrant spies, how screenwriters write emotionally stolid characters, and how partners manage hard conversations. Charles Duhigg is today's guest. We talk about the art and science of having the most difficult conversations from romantic relationships to political persuasion. I'm Derek Thompson. This is Plain English. Charles Duhigg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. This is so much fun. It's great to see you. So you've written a book about habits. You've written a book about productivity. What made you want to write a book about talking, effective communication? Yeah, it's a really good question because what happened was that when I wrote The Power of Habit, um, you know, it's really about internally focusing. And so is Smarter, Faster, Better, which is about productivity. And and I kept on hearing from people who said, look, I've, I've read the advice and I've read the lessons and they and I, I use them, but most of my success each day is dependent on other people. And I don't know how to change other people's habits. Like, tell me how to get this guy to stop bothering me. <laughs> and as I got deeper into this, I realized, well, actually what's going on here is that most of our life is spent in social in social groups, right? Whether it's our family or our workmates. And so understanding how to connect with other people is a critical part of of anyone's success. And in most of the connection that we do is through conversation. And and I also realized I was bad at it, so I decided to write a book about it. You you took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say I remember from your previous books that, you know, the power of habit helped you cultivate better habits. And the book about productivity helped you to recast the way that you think about productivity, not just about how to get the most things done in a day professionally, but how to live a life that is from a more wholesome perspective, more productive at, at doing the things you want to do with your family, with your loved ones. So bef in the before you wrote this book, how would you have graded your own communication skills? Where do you now see the biggest deficits 
in your communication skills, having you know gone and now written a 300-page book on the subject? I, I would grade my own skills very poorly. <laughs> and, and there's these two instances that stick out in my mind. The first is that I was working at the New York Times at that point, and they made me a manager. And I was like pretty much certain I was going to be an awesome manager, right? That like I've had managers before. I got an MBA from Harvard. Like I was like, oh, I got this. And I was good at the like the strategy part. I was terrible at the communication part. Like this was the consistent feedback I get is like, I talk to him and I feel like he's not listening to what I'm saying, or he tells me stuff and I don't understand what he wants. And this really caught me off guard because like we're journalists, we're supposed to be professional communicators. And then this pattern developed it at home with my wife. We, we, uh, we've been married about 20 years now. So this is probably married, you know, 15 or 16 years. And I would come home from work after a long day and I would start complaining about things about, about my boss or my coworkers. And she very reasonably would say something like, oh, why don't you take your boss out to lunch and you guys can get to know each other and get, and you know, like, here's a solution. And instead of being able to hear what she was saying, I would get even more upset. And I'd be like, you're not supporting me. You're, I want you to have, be outraged on my behalf. And then she would get upset because I was yelling at her for no apparent reason. And this happened a lot. To, to us. And I think it happens in a lot of relationships, right? Uh, sometimes the gender roles are reversed. And so I started calling up these psychologists and neurologists and others and saying like, this is happening and I don't understand why. Tell me what's going on. And that was kind of the origin of the book. Yeah. The mismatch between one partner or friend wants to vent and the other partner or friend wants to problem solve is just one of the most classic mismatches in any conversation. And I remember several years ago, I read a paper that now I haven't been able to relocate that said there is an expectation, sometimes even a gendered expectation, that some people, maybe disproportionately women, vent, while other people, maybe disproportionately men, problem solve. And they said, that's wrong. Everybody vents and everybody problem solves. The difference is that some people internalize versus externalize different parts of the process. So some people, again, I think this paper said disproportionately women, but I can't be 100% sure, so I don't want to represent that. But uh, some people problem solve internally. What they externalize is the venting. They'll figure out how to deal with their boss inside, alone, in the shower. What they want to do with their partner is just vent about what a jerk the yeah, boss is. Yeah, it's just complain and have well, someone say, other like, people I understand the opposite. Other people are the total opposite. They externalize the problem solving and it's internally that they vent inside their own head. That's they're having this self-talk. You know, Charles, yeah. like, God, like my boss is such a fucking asshole. That's all inside. So it's not as if some people vent and some people don't vent. Some people problem solve, some people don't. The difference is what part of the process we externalized. I was like, oh, that's yeah. such an interesting way and that, that's of universalizing totally a communication habit. And, and that ties really well into what the, all these experts told me when I called them, right? Because the way that they approached it and I think they're saying the same thing you're saying, is they said, look, it, what we've learned about conversation, and we're living through this golden age of understanding conversation because of these advances in neuroimaging and data collection. They said, look, what we're learning about conversation is we tend to think of something as being one discussion, right? We're talking about your day, or we're talking about, I'm trying to give you a solution to get along with your boss. But actually, every discussion is made up of multiple kinds of conversations, and, and most of those fall into one of three buckets. And I think that this corresponds to what you just said. There's there's this practical bucket, which is the problem-solving bucket, right? Logical. There's the emotional bucket, where I tell you how I'm feeling, and I don't want you to solve my problem. I just want you to empathize with me. And then there's the social conversations, where we're talking about how we relate to each other or how we relate to society. And I think what might be happening in the paper that you just mentioned is that we tend to fall into habits with which of those buckets we feel most comfortable in. 
right? So men very often are very comfortable in a practical bucket. That does not mean that they necessarily have more practical conversations, but it means that when they have emotional conversations, sometimes they pose it in practical language because that's the language that they're most comfortable in. And and what these psychologists said and these researchers said is, in order to the reason I couldn't hear my wife is because I was having an emotional conversation. She was having a practical conversation. And you have to be having the same kind of conversation at the same moment to really connect with each other. And sometimes that means not listening to all the practical words you're speaking, but paying attention to the fact that you are actually discussing your emotions and you just don't have the vocabulary for it. We're going to return to this theme several times in this conversation because to me at least it was the most resonant theme of the book, which is that in order to have a great conversation, you need to understand what conversation you're having. And I'm sure there's a 10,000 different species of conversation, but I think you usefully categorize them under three genuses or geni or whatever the plural of genus is, <laughs> which is right, the practical conversation, let's solve a problem, the emotional conversation, let's talk to each other about each other's feelings and get to the root of what those feelings mean. And then a kind of social identity conversation, which is like, what part of your identity, what part of your, your interpersonal or political identity needs to be activated in order for us to have a useful conversation? Um, so I want to start by talking about marriage. And we can start by talking about my marriage. My wife is finishing up her PhD in clinical psychology right now. So like all relationships, we have hard conversations. But unlike many relationships, we talk a lot about the psychology of hard conversations, which is why I was so interested in a passage in your book on the Love Shrinks study. Uh, in the open that I just recorded a few minutes ago, I described the study and the many hypotheses that were dashed as these, as these researchers were trying like hell to figure out the secret ingredients of a productive fight, a productive hard conversation. I wanted to save the punchline of this study for you. So tell me about how researchers settled on the issue of control, control as being central to the art of productive fights in relationships. Yeah. Thank you for asking about this because I love this story. And it's actually revolutionized how me and my wife have hard conversations. So they went through all these hypotheses about why some people can fight well, right? We have fights and there's no lingering rancor. We, our relationship gets stronger. And then other people would have basically what looked like the same fight and end up getting angrier and angrier and hating each other more and more. And what they found was that in those bad conversations, in those bad fights, pe both people in the relationship were trying to control each other. Now, it is totally normal to want to control something when you're in an argument, right? An argument is so overwhelming. It puts us on our, our fight-or-flight instincts. It makes us defensive. And so what we want, what every person wants, is just one thing that they can control. One thing that they can grasp onto. And the most obvious thing that we can control is the other person, right? So we try and control them by saying things like, if you'll just listen to me, you'll understand what I'm saying. Or if you just see things from my point of view, you'll see that I'm right. Or sometimes we try and control other people's emotions. They say, I feel bad about this thing that happens. And we say, oh, no, you, you shouldn't feel bad about that. Like, that's not something to feel bad about. I'm trying to control how you feel, even though you've just told me that you feel differently. This is toxic. Trying to control each other, whether in a marriage or an online discussion or with at work, that nobody wants to be controlled by someone else. It feels toxic. But we all have this instinct for control. And so what the researchers, the love shrinks, figured out was you can rechannel that instinct for control to things that we can control together. So for instance, we can try and control the environment. If we start having a fight at two in the morning, we can say, look, 
let's wait until like, let's go back to bed and wait till the sun comes up and we're both like well rested and then, then we'll talk about it. You can try and control yourself. You can, you can make it obvious. You can say things like, look, I, I hear what you're saying. Let me take a second to think about how I want to respond before I say it, which is an obvious example of self-control. Or we can control the boundaries of the fight itself. So one thing that happens in bad marriages is this thing called kitchen sinking, which is that a fight about like where we're going to go for Thanksgiving becomes a fight about like your mother doesn't like me and we don't have enough money and you're always a jerk when we're around your family, right? A fight about one thing becomes a fight about everything. And this is literally the most toxic pattern in a relationship. If that happens, things are not going to go well. I want to stop you there because this is actually, this is exactly where I wanted to jump in. My wife and I have developed a kind of catchphrase in our marriage, which is don't open new tabs. And so for example, let's say, you know, a married couple is fighting over something really commonplace. Like, you know, I'd like you to show more interest in my life. I want you to ask more questions about my work and friends. You never ask me myself. And the other partner in response says, well, I don't think you pay enough attention to me. And by the way, it's because you're always going out with your friends and you don't have enough time for me. And that's because you've actually never respected me. So like on the surface, this looks like a really straightforward kind of normal marital dispute. Like one person raises a problem, another person gets defensive and comes up with a bunch of excuses. No, the problem isn't with me. It's actually with you. It seems like an extremely typical sort of chaotic fight. But just under the surface, what's happening <laughs> is that one person opened like a tab on a browser. And the subject of that tab was, I want you to ask me more questions. And the second person responded by pressing Apple T over and over and over again <laughs> and opening a bunch of other tabs in the conversation that's like about respect and the time you'd spend with your friends. It's just tab after tab after tab. And the same way that having too many tabs on a browser can disorient you and maybe even you know crash the browser itself, in relationships, having too many tabs of contention crashes the productive possibility of the conversation. Oh, absolutely. And so absolutely. what we both say now is, don't open new tabs. If I come to you and say, take out the trash, don't come back to me about the nine different things that I haven't done the last <laughs> right, two weeks. Right. Open that tab later. The trash tab is open and it has to be closed. Otherwise, the room is going to stink. You know, one tab at a time. Absolutely so, like, right. Count the tabs as a kind of, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a way. What, what, I, what I loved about this chapter is the way that you gave us a new language for what we were already trying to do, which is like to x-ray the conversation for tabs, x-ray the conversation for like, how many different things are we talking about in this fight? How do we talk about as few of them as possible? And if we get it down to one tab, we can actually focus on solving that one problem rather than not solving 17 problems. Well, and the best part about it is that by when you decide to focus on that one tab, you're cooperating. Right, Both of you are saying you're cooperating on the same task. You both say, look, what we want to do is we want to eliminate the other tabs. This is the tab we want to focus on. And so even though you're disagreeing with each other, even though you're fighting with each other, there's this thing that you're cooperating on that convinces both of you that this conversation can be productive. I, I love that analogy, by the way. Like It's, just such, a, it's such a wonderful analogy. And, and it, it totally gets to this control issue, right? Because... When I open new tabs, oftentimes I'm trying to control you. Oh, you brought up me listening? Well, I'm going to bring up what a jerk you were to my friends, right? I'm trying to control where the conversation goes. But we can find something to control together, which is let's stay focused. Another term I want to make sure we introduce here before I move on to any other topic is the concept of looping for understanding. What is this idea, looping for understanding, and how does it help produce more productive conversations? It, it's a really important technique, and, and it's taught at Harvard and Stanford and basically every sort of school. And 
And it's particularly important when we are having a conversation where we're in conflict with each other, where we disagree with each other. Because what happens is, if I'm disagreeing with you, if we're debating or arguing, in the back of my mind, almost subconsciously, I suspect that you are not listening to me. I suspect you are waiting your turn to speak. (laughs) And if you're not going to listen to me, then like, gosh darn it, I'm not going to listen to you either. I'm going to wait my turn to talk and then give you a piece of my mind. And, And this means that we never become aligned. We never really start hearing each other. So looping for understanding draws from this insight that what's really important is not just listening, it's proving that you're listening, particularly if someone is skeptical that you're listening because you're in a conflict. And it just, there's three steps to looping for understanding. The first is just ask a question. And there's these questions called deep questions that are special, but, but really any question will work. Then listen to what the person says. And step two is repeat back in your own words what you just heard them say. Like, show that you heard them and show that you processed it. And then the third step, and this is the one people usually forget, is ask if you got it right. Now, the reason why this is so powerful is because, first of all, if I prove to you that I've heard what you've said, it is hardwired into our brains, this thing called social reciprocity, that the other person will want to listen back to you. But equally, oftentimes I want to listen, and I and I trip over my own feet, right? Like you say something I disagree with and I start coming up with arguments in my own head about why you're wrong and suddenly I'm not listening anymore. But if my assignment to myself is I have to listen to Derek so closely that I can repeat back what he told me in my own words to show that I kind of understand it, then I don't have any room to start debating you in my head. I have to listen. So it's as much a technique to prove to you that I'm listening as a self-hack to make me actually listen to you. And it's, it's incredibly important. You mentioned deep questions, and I just want to touch on this before we move on to difficult political conversations, because I did find this to be a really interesting section of the book. What do you see? Why don't you give a few examples of shallow questions versus deep questions, and then tell us what you see as like the main difference between a shallow and a deep question? Absolutely. So a deep question is something that asks about your values, your beliefs, or your experiences. And that can sound kind of intimidating, right? Because those seem like big questions, but they're actually usually not. So like, for instance, let's say I bump into someone and I say, what do you do for a living? And they say, oh, I'm a lawyer. A deep question would be to say, oh, you know, what made you decide to go to law school? Or, oh, what do you love about practicing the law? Would you, would you tell one of your kids to become a lawyer? Those are all deep questions, even though they don't appear that deep, because what they do is they invite the other person to tell me about their experiences that led them to law school, about their beliefs, so that about what they, what their kids need, about their values that they're able to to make make for meaningful work. And what's I'm really gonna, imp- yeah, let me quickly ahead. read from. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I, I promise I'll conclude this interruption by looping for understanding, <laughs> Charles. Um, this is page ninety-seven of your book. Um, let me give you some examples of shallow questions that you list in this chapter. Where do you live? Where do you work? Where did you go to college? Are you married? Do you have any hobbies? To me, those are factual questions. That's those exactly are questions right. that someone could put on a form. In fact, it's very possible the last time that they went to the doctor's office, they were asked to fill out several of these questions. That's what exactly the doctor right. rarely asks you, at least on the initial uh, form, is about memories and opinions. So where do you live is a fact. What do you like about your neighborhood? That's an opinion, right? Where do you work? That's a fact. What was your favorite job? That's an opinion or even a memory, right? What was your favorite job that you've ever had? And so it seems to me like what you're saying here is if you want to build intimacy with someone, simply interviewing them isn't enough because actually we're interviewed all the time in incredibly 
formal, non-intimate settings, right? I don't feel any attachment to like the woman behind the desk to whom I hand in my like intake form when I go to the, you know, dermatologist or something. Like there's nothing personal, nothing deep has been revealed. But if the, if I, if the, if I hand in the form and maybe they, you know, violate some HIPAA uh, requirement, start reading the form to themselves and say, oh, you know, you, you were born in McLean, Virginia. Uh, I'm from McLean, Virginia. What's your favorite restaurant there? Okay. Now I'm, now I'm sharing opinions and memories and there's something about opinion and memory that seems to unlock intimacy in a way that fact does not. Is, is that right? Charles? Yes, you got have, it have exactly. You got it exactly right. Very good looping for understanding. You got it exactly right. And and I think the way that I would synopsize what you said is don't ask about the facts of someone's life, ask how they feel about their life. Because these fact questions are dead ends, right? Unless you pivot to a feeling question. But if if I ask you you know, why did you decide to become a lawyer? And you say, oh, it's because, you know, I saw my uncle get arrested and I want to fight for the little guy. Then what's interesting is it's very natural for me as the questioner to answer the same question I just asked you and say, oh, that's interesting. Like, I decided to become a doctor because my dad got sick when I was young. Now we're actually telling each other meaningful things about our lives. And, and we can infer all kinds of things from that. Like, you're someone who believes in justice. You believe in the underdog. I'm someone who desperately cares about caring for people. Now, not only are we sharing, we're engaging in what's known as reciprocal vulnerability, which is a critical element of closeness. But we're also discussing things that actually matter. We're having deep conversations rather than shallow ones, even though we didn't necessarily ask questions that seemed emotional or seemed intrusive. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Here's a writing tip for work. Don't just write. Use Canva Docs. It has Magic Write, a built-in AI text generator powered by OpenAI to help you create almost anything, from meeting agendas to job descriptions, marketing plans, proposals, and more. Canva is here to help you get it done. If you've used AI for work, for writing, for coming up with bullet points for a podcast, a meeting, you know that AI works best when you're specific, when you tell AI exactly what you want and then tell it again and again, help me do this, help me talk like this kind of person. The more specific you can be, the more helpful you'll find it is. Generate your draft fast with Canva Docs at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just 
once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. It is, in fact, kind of deep to think about the idea that the feelings of our lives are more similar than the facts of our lives. So, for example, Democrats and Republicans might disagree vehemently on an issue like abortion or even something like the child tax credit, but they agree that they love their children. The feelings of their lives are more similar than the facts of their opinions. This takes us into politics, and I have a, a, a bit of a controversial theory of persuasion that was activated by your chapter on having hard conversations about, for example, um, vaccinations during a period of political polarization. And my theory of persuasion is that the best way to persuade somebody is to first of all recognize that nobody in the history of argument has ever been persuaded of anything ever. In a way, persuasion is impossible. (laughs) No one changes their mind at a deep level. Like moral foundations are fixed. And so the best way to get people to update their views in any kind of way is to get them to see that a new idea is in fact a perfect expression of an old deep value that they hold. That's um, so, really, really well put. Yeah. So Olga Kazan wrote about this for The Atlantic. And I just want to make sure that I that I name check her because I, I stole this idea from a piece that she wrote. But basically she looked at a couple of studies looking at like if you're a liberal and you want to persuade a conservative to support, say, more immigration, let's say, don't appeal to your own moral foundation of of liberalness, right? Fairness. Appeal to the moral foundation of conservatives, right? Maybe more high-skilled immigration will make all Americans incredibly rich and their taxes can pay for your retirement, right? Understand the deep foundations of the other person's viewpoint and try to make your opinion sound like it fits into it. So I'm interested in how that theory of persuasion fits with what you discovered about the science and art of having difficult conversations across the political aisle. Oh, it it fits perfectly. And you're exactly right. There's literally only one technique that's been shown to be persuasive and political uh, around political issues. And and this is research that was done in the last decade um, around the push for gay marriage and for trans rights. And the only way to really persuade people of of the opposite opinion that they currently hold is to go have a conversation with them, to ask them questions about themselves and their experiences, you know, I know that you're against gay marriage, but like, I'm just wondering, like, you know, what does marriage mean to you? Like, why is it important? Like, what, which friends do you think have a really good marriage? Spend half an hour doing that and then simply relate your issue to what they said. I heard you say that you think marriage is really important because it's stability. And I want you to know, like, I actually am gay and I want a stable relationship with my husband. Like, I want the reason I married him is the exact same reason that you think marriage is good is like, we want that stability. Now, suddenly, and that's not going to change everyone's minds, right? They they had a five, basically a five to six percent influence rate. But five to six percent in politics is huge, right? That decides elections. And, and the reason why this is so powerful is because th- there's this there's this fallacy that we can imagine ourselves into someone else's head, right? Like if a if we just walk in the shoes of a Palestinian refugee or of a of an Israeli citizen, like we'll understand how they see the world. And every single study has shown that is not right. Like if you try and imagine yourself into someone else's shoes that you don't know, you're going to do a bad job of it. You're going to think you did a great job, but you're going to do a terrible job. So the only way to figure out how they think about things is to ask some questions. And those questions 
have to be curious and genuine. They can't be arguments hidden as questions, right? And then we have to prove to them that we're listening to them by looping for understanding. And once we do that, then we understand how they see the world. And you're exactly right. Once we understand how they see the world, we can draw the connection between the thing we care about and the thing they care about. But if we just come in and we say, like, basically, you're caring about the wrong thing, of course they're not going to listen to us. I hope this question doesn't sound too cynical, but you you just said that the persuasion rate or the conversion rate of even the most successful or with even the most successful persuasion tactics is still only like five, six, seven percent. It's interesting to me that we are, as you said, learning more about the science of successful communication in an era where it seems like the practice of successful communication, especially in the political sphere, has never been worse. So clearly, something either something is not trickling down from academics, or the theory is wrong or overlooked in the actual practice of political conversations. What do you think explains the fact that even though we might be more awash in a scientific understanding of effective communications, than we have been in previous decades. In fact, the practice of political communication flatly sucks, and we are unbelievably polarized. Yeah, and I should say that that like you know five or six percent conversion rate. That's when you're talking to someone who has already said that they're opposed to your um, ideological issue. So it's someone who says, "I'm absolutely against gay marriage." You can convert three to five percent of them, or six percent of them, using this technique. So I think what's going on is. A couple of things. The first is that because political races have become so focused on the swing voter, and because right now there's so few swing voters, they have basically thrown out the obligation, campaigns have thrown out the obligation to try and communicate with the average voter, right? This race is, the presidential race is probably going to come down to at most 150,000 Americans living in like, you know, five or six or seven states. And and I've talked, I, I'm sure you talked to them too. I've talked to the people who are putting together the the persuasion for those six or seven states. And the, and they're very focused on this city cares about X. We've, we've polled every single person we want to persuade. It's very, very targeted. But now I live in Santa Cruz, California. And what's wonderful about living in a in a small community like this is that we have we have local races where it's completely different. Like people aren't set in their ways. It's not, it's not polarized. And the persuasion that happens there is very sophisticated. In part because people, politicians intuit that they need to be sophisticated. They meet with voters who ask serious questions, but also because a lot of the findings, like asking someone how they're going to vote and their plan for their vote, right? That's research that was in the late 90s, early 2000s. That's pretty commonplace now. And most importantly, having these conversations where my goal is to understand you rather than to persuade you. And persuasion, if it happens, is great, but it's it's not the measure of success. That happens a lot more now on local races than it used to because we understand that's the only way you persuade someone. I also wonder whether a downside of the strategies that you write about in the book and the strategies that I believe to be successful when it comes to political persuasion don't scale effectively. That is, what you were talking about, get two people in a room, one person asks a lot of neutral questions of another builds one-to-one personal intimacy, and gradually they realize that their social identities around something like, you know, the value of marriage, the value of stability in families leads both sides to see the virtue of gay marriage, right? That's, that's a, that's a, 
so it, maybe it's actually happened, but yeah, I'm just I'm sort of making up that particular example. That's very difficult to scale. That means that in order to convince 100,000 people, you need 100,000 persuaders who are very adept at asking neutral questions and communicating empathy. Or at and least right 20,000 people who, who are willing to have multiple conversations yeah, over there, multiple there you go. days. Okay, right. You can, certainly, you can scale it that way. <laughs> but it seems like the way that politics is, is done today and the way that ideas move through the information landscape today is through the dynamics of viral networks. And people believe in conspiracy theories because they saw them on a phone because it came from a, podca a podcast that saw it on a newsletter that saw it from some other platform, right? And so it's an unbelievably depersonalized information landscape rather than one that is like the scenes in your book that show actual persuasion. And so I guess I, I'm trying to build toward a question here, but like the question is, the, do the strategies in this book scale at all if you're a political operative trying to figure out how to swing votes? They do. They absolutely do. But it should be somewhat hard to persuade large numbers of people, right? If they're, it, I mean, if people actually believe their beliefs, then I shouldn't be able to like find that one magic trick that gets everyone to suddenly think about, think gay marriage is okay, right? It, I, like, and, and prior to television and radio, if you look at political races, and frankly, prior to television, you saw this. You saw that people worked really hard. When Obama won, Obama fielded the largest field campaign in history, and they picked up votes in places where other people didn't even know voters were on the fence. That's how you win an election, and that should be how you win an election. That should be how you become president. It shouldn't be that I can figure out a trick. Now, the question of what, how it scales, if we look to medicine, there's a really good example there, which, as you mentioned, is the, the vaccine, right? The COVID vaccine. There were a large number of people who refused to get the COVID vaccine because they believed that it was dangerous or they believed that it caused autism or they just didn't like what the government tells them to do. And the NIH initially came out and they said, look, to doctors, they told doctors, the way to handle this is just give them the facts, right? Like if you if you tell them what the science says, they'll end up take, getting the vaccine. And every single doctor who worked for these populations was like, absolutely not. They have all the facts. They have been researching on the internet for 40 hours. They believe <laughs> that they know everything. So that the so what they the what how the the persuasion technique changed is it changed to this thing called motivational interviewing, which is exactly what we just said. Where what I try and do is the goal of my conversation is to understand you and to elicit multiple identities that you possess. So for instance, you come into the office and you're anti-vax. And I'm gonna ask a question. You know, why why don't you want to get the vaccine? Just tell me, like, tell me what you think about it. Oh, it's because it causes autism. Okay, I'm not gonna disagree with you. Instead, I'm gonna say, you know, I notice also that you're a parent. And I'm I'm wondering, like, for your kids at school, like, do you worry about about their health at school? Like, how do you, how do you, how do you think about that? How do you handle that? Right. And then, and then also I noticed that like you go to the same park I do and, and you probably notice that there's that one person with that dog that's crazy, right? Like, what do you think we should do about someone who won't control their dog, whose, whose dog poses a risk? Now what I've done is I've introduced multiple identities into the conversation. I've recognized that you are multiple people and inevitably those multiple identities conflict with each other a little bit. They do for all of us. Right, as a as a journalist, I want to do th one thing. As a parent, I want to do one thing, and as a as a brother, I want to do another thing. And and we're able to manage those complexities. We're able to find an answer. But if I say to you, "You're an anti-vaxer," or "I'm a doctor," I'm the expert, then suddenly we're basically falling into stereotypes. And and it's not about these complexities. It's about simplicity. And I just say, actually, I think your identity is bad. I'm not going to listen to it. 
I want to close by tying this back to what I, again, think is the central and most important takeaway of the book, which is that in order to have effective conversations, you first have to know what conversation you're having. And in the story that you just told about how doctors overruled the NIH, in a way, you could recast that story as saying the NIH wanted to have a practical conversation. They wanted to have a conversation about facts. And the doctors on the ground who understood their patients' resistance to the COVID vaccines said, no, we a practical conversation will not work. That's the wrong conversation to have. The right conversation to have might be an emotional conversation. We might want to understand the sort of emotional portfolio of someone who is resistant to getting the vaccine. But in fact, the most successful conversation to have is a social identity conversation. You have one identity, which is that you are a conservative who listens to Joe Rogan and distrusts the medical establishment. Understood. Millions, tens of millions of people do the exact same. I'm a parent. Are you a parent? Okay, now you've shifted from one social identity that is political and therefore somewhat inherently confrontational to a social identity that is communal and therefore somewhat inherently softer. People can have a conversation about it. And so there, the effective navigation between conversations one, two, three, practical, emotional, and social leads at, le- at least to the, the highest possible batting average for converting people That's into, exactly into right. getting the vaccine. There's no formula here. This, just, this is about raising batting, batting averages from below to above the Mendoza line. And, and one doctor I talked to, she said that she would ask that question about being a parent, and then she'd say, oh, you know, I'm a parent too. Um, and like you, I really care about, worry about kids' safety. And the thing I struggle with is sometimes these kids come in and they haven't been vaccinated, and they're sick, and they ask for the vaccine, and I can't give it to them because it won't do anything at this point. Now, instead of having a question about whether Joe Rogan is like the person to listen to or Andy Fauci, or Fauci is the person to listen to, now we're talking about our own experiences, right? This is how I parent, and we have this in common, and we both struggle with it. It's hard. Suddenly now we can cooperate on, see- on trying to figure out how the other person sees the world rather than trying to force them to see it our way. Charles Duhigg, thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. You you are, by the way, a super communicator. You're very good at it. <laughs> thank you, man. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Plain English is produced by Devin Baroldi. We've got new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. If you like what you're hearing, give us five stars and a nice review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. For feedback and episode suggestions, email us at plain English at Spotify dot com.